Thank you, Joe. So good morning. Uh, we continue this morning in a series through the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. Uh, we're making our way through. Slowing down a little bit here in chapter 2 because it is of such uh, significance. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, we're going to read from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. If you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. You can follow along there. Or if you're at home, uh, it'll be on your screen as well, I believe. Just three short verses, but there is a lot. It packs a powerful punch, uh, these three verses. So let's read together, beginning in verse 8. For by grace, Paul says, you've been saved through faith... And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What is unique about Christianity? Among all of the ideologies, all of the religions of the world, what is unique about Christianity? It'd be interesting to know how everybody would answer that question. There was a British conference in the 1940s that was called to discuss and answer that very question. And they began, as the story is told, eliminating possible answers. Incarnation? Well, no, because there are other religions that had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection? Again, other religions made similar claims, and the debate went on for some time until, again, as the story goes, C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and heard the discussion. And when he was asked for his answer, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And the matter was settled. The last words of the Buddha were, strive without ceasing. His dying words to his followers, strive without ceasing. Jesus' dying words to us were, it is finished. I mean, the unique feature of Christianity is just that, grace. And therefore, the unique feature of Christians should be grace. When people ask, what makes Christians so different? What makes Christians unique among all the peoples in the world? The answer should be grace. And yet I wonder if that is the case. This is the central message of Paul's letter here to the Ephesians. God's grace toward us, making us gracious towards others. God's grace toward us, making us gracious towards one another. God's grace towards us, chapters 1 through 3, making us gracious, chapters 4 through 6. The word grace, just here in these little verses, appears three times. You see it in verse 8, which we read. But if you go back, if you have a Bible, and you look back at verses 6 and 7, you'll see that it's, it's there in verses 6 and 7 as well. Three times. You have this word grace. In fact, in verse, in verse um, 6, you have the repeated phrase that's here in verse 8. By grace you have been saved twice for emphasis, word for word the same. Because it is what Paul, is the point that Paul is laboring to make to us. That we are, in fact, saved by grace. And that is what we have to talk about this morning. That we are saved by grace, not works. As Paul says here, we are saved by grace not works, if you're a Christian, and therefore, because we are saved by grace and not works, our lives should be full of the works of grace. That's what these verses mean. And so let's walk through these three power-packed verses together by first saying, Paul summarizing here what he's already said, that Christianity is grace, not works. Look at it again with me, verses 8 and 9. For by grace that you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, 
not a result of works. Now, we've said a great deal about grace already in this series. That's because Paul has a great deal, deal to say about it here, but let's do so again. Grace means that God's love is free, that it is not a response to anything in us. Uh, Madison Baumgartner, the MVP of the, ninth, of, excuse me, of the 2014 World Series, he pitched game one, if you remember that series, if you're a baseball fanatic. He pitched game one, and then he pitched again in game four, and then... He came in late in game seven and through the last number of innings. He actually closed out the series in the ninth inning of that game seven to win for his team. But the story is told that his dad texted him on that night, but he texted him in the top of the ninth before he went out in the bottom of the ninth to win the game to say how proud he was and that he loved him. And he did it then before he pitched the ninth and not after because he wanted him to know that his love had nothing to do with his performance in the bottom of that inning. He won the game, but his dad didn't love him because he won the game. His dad's love was unchanged even if he lost the game. And that's the lesson that his dad wanted him to know. Philip Yancey puts it this way. He says, Grace, trying, he, he, wrote, he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, and he spends... 100 pages or so, straining towards exactly how do you describe and how do you define grace? And he lands on this. He says, grace means there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on the behalf of righteous causes. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. And grace means that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. But not only that, grace, grace also means that God's love and acceptance, this, this you know, amazing love that Philip Yancey is describing, that it is contrary to merit. It's contrary to merit. We deserve one thing and we get another. We deserve wrath and death and hell for our sins. That's verse 3, but instead we get love. God does not love us on the basis of our works. He loves us contrary to our works, contrary to what we deserve, in fact. But there is a subtle temptation uh, in saying this that Paul is addressing here, and that is that even though we would say we're saved by faith and not works, if we're not careful, what can happen is our heart can sneak works in the back door by turning faith into a work. To say, you know, we say, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. God does 99% of the work, right? Or, as I said, 99.99% of the work, but there's still that tiny little bit that has to come from you. And so William Romaine, who I checked is no relation to the lettuce, and he's an 18th century pastor. <laughs> he, talked, he talked about it, and he said it this way. I thought this was really insightful. He said that we can make a Jesus out of our faith. We can make a Jesus out of our faith. In other words, we can be looking not to Jesus as the object of our faith, but to our faith, trusting in the fact that we have believed that we made the right decision to follow Jesus. And this is where I, it regrets me to inform you that Ted Lasso is wrong. We don't believe in belief. We don't believe in belief. The human heart is so prone to works righteousness. So Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by faith, we're saved by grace through faith. And then he, but then he wants to clarify because he says, but even the faith that saves is itself a grace. Look there in verse 8, he says, this 
And of course, there's, there's all of this, there's books that have been written about exactly what that word this is referring to. Is it referring to the grace or is it referring to the faith? And the answer is yes, both. He says this, but primarily your faith is not your own doing. In other words, even the faith that you might express is part of the grace that saves. It doesn't come from, come from you. It's a gift of God. J.I. Packer has written how this, whether faith comes from God or from the individual. Is faith, is faith a gift that comes from God or is it something that you have to work up that comes from you? He says this really was the issue at the heart of the Reformation. I mean, Protestantism was birthed in the answering of this question. Is God the author not just of justification but also faith? Is Christianity a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation or at the end is it really just self-reliance and self-effort? And the answer to that question comes down to whether you believe what Paul says here. Is faith a condition of being saved? Is it your contribution to your salvation or is it itself a grace? Is it a gift that comes from God and not from you? Because if faith comes from you, even if it's 0.00001% of the whole, you know, idea of salvation... If faith at the end of the day comes from you, then you are saved by works. Then faith is a meritorious work. But if faith comes from God and not you, then you're saved by grace. Listen to J.I. Packer. He says, to rely on oneself for faith is no different in, in principle than to rely upon oneself for works. And the one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. The opposite of works here is not faith. The opposite of your works is Christ's works. And so when it says not a result of works, it doesn't mean that we are saved by grace and not works. It means that we're saved by Jesus' works, not our works. It's a very important point to make. Because there are works that we owe to God. We read that. Joe read that to us as a, call, as a, a law passage. There are works that we owe to God. There's faith that we owe to him that, that is due to him. But we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are unable to do the works that God's glory and holiness demand. But there is one who has done them. That's the Christian message. That's the Christian gospel. And so at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus, you might remember, came to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And if you remember the story, John at first wouldn't baptize him. He said, no, 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 I, I shouldn't baptize you. You need to baptize me. But Jesus answered him by saying, it must be so to fulfill all righteousness. And John conceded. But here's what that means. Jesus didn't need to be baptized to be cleansed of sin and forgiven. You and I need that. But he didn't. Because he had no sin. But he came into the world to become like us, to work righteousness for us. And he came to do it by being unlike us. He came to experience all the temptation that we ourselves experience, but to be obedient through it, so that all of his righteousness, all of his works could be ours too. All of his worship and obedience to the Father, all of his neighbor love, all of his humility, all of his holiness, all of his moral beauty, so that all of that could be ours too if we believe. And that is, if we would stop trying to be good enough on our own, if we would stop trying to work for God's love and trust the work that Jesus accomplished for us instead. You see, we don't push faith out of ourselves, right? We don't push faith out of ourselves by internal effort. Faith is pulled out of us by the finished work of Christ. 
Faith is not effort. It's the opposite. It's resting in the works of Jesus to be sufficient for you. And so if Christianity is sure grace, if there is none righteous, if Jesus and his works alone are what is able to save us and make us righteous before God, if we are so incapable of saving ourselves, if even the faith to rest in Christ is itself a gift that comes from God and not something that comes from us, then the obvious implication is inside of Christianity, there is no grounds for boasting. Doesn't that just make sense? Look here, not of works, verse 9, so that no one might might boast. So let's be clear, self-righteousness, a condescending looking down your nose at people who don't meet your standards, thinking to yourself, man, I'm so glad that I'm not like, I'm so glad that I go to a church where those kinds of people don't go. I'm one of the good guys. Or, you know, I can't believe, I can't believe that the church would open its doors to people like that. I mean, the church becoming inhospitable to sinners and strugglers, it has no place in Christianity. If you're saved by grace, which is what Paul so clearly says here, then you have no moral high ground to stand on, which of course means if you're boasting, if you're constantly pointing out how well you're doing, if you need people to see how good and moral and responsible and successful you are, then you're not resting in Christ. Or if you have a critical spirit and you're always pointing out how wrong everybody else is, right? But when you face criticism, well, that's a different story now. Now, I mean, you know, you become defensive or personally offended or blame shift and defend yourself, then that is a sign that there are places that may be unknown to you, that may be undiscovered to you, where you are still unbelieving, where you are really at the bottom still trusting in your own works. Christianity's grace. And therefore, Christians should be, above all else, gracious. And let's do an exercise if you're taking notes, what are some of the synonyms of gracious? What, what are the words that you would use? You don't necessarily have to say them out loud, but things like humble, self-effacing, empathetic, welcoming, forgiving, patient, not rude, not harsh, not braggadocious, right? But one more thing before we move on here. The word boast there in verse 9 is not only a verb, it also can be a noun. Your, vo- your boast is the source of your confidence. The ancient world was filled with ritual boasts. So if you've watched Braveheart, for example, or some other movie where armies line up against one another, before the battle, they would line up and they would yell out to the opposing forces, you know, our swords are stronger than yours. Or if you remember, you remember the uh, scene in Braveheart where they, the Scots kind of like are just mocking the British and they all turn around and like lift up their kilts and moon them, you know, or whatever, the, whatever. Like where you just, where what you're doing is, is you're whipping one another up. You're trying to collectively find the courage to, when the commander says charge, to go out into the field and charge. Our shields are, you know, are stronger than yours. Our swords are longer than yours. They would boast to find the confidence to charge into battle. So here's the question. What is your boast? What is the source of your courage that allows you to be strong? confident as you go out into the world. You should reflect on that. It might be your wisdom. Jeremiah talks about this, right? It might be be that you consider yourself smart enough to make the right decisions or to solve whatever problems you encounter. It might be your connections or your social clout that gives you courage and strength. It might be your money that you have the personal resources to win. It might be your morality. You might be hanging your whole hope on the fact that good things happen to good people and you're one of the good people. 
And so it's going to be okay. And that self-righteousness, self-righteousness is a powerful force. It can assure you that you've earned the life that you want. But becoming a Christian means making Christ your boast. What makes you feel strong and safe? For the Christian, it is knowing that you're loved by God because of Jesus. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. Isn't that great news? Because it means there's nothing that you can do to make him love you any less. And so the prophet Jeremiah says, we boast in the Lord who practices steadfast love. Are you resting in Jesus' work to save you? Is that your boast? Is he your boast? Because that is the spiritual riches. Listen, that is the true spiritual power. His grace can bring a confidence, a spiritual energy into your life that is better than wisdom or business connections or success or even $10 million in the bank. I know you don't believe that. I'm not sure I do either. But it's what he says. And the result of making Jesus your boast, Paul says, is deep personal transformation that leads to a life of showing grace to others. And so secondly, we see not only that, just very clearly Paul's saying, yet again, we're saved by grace, not works. But if we get keyed into that reality, then what happens is, is that our lives will become full of works of grace. We're saved by grace, not works, but there are good works. The good works just come after becoming a Christian and not before. You've got to get the order right. See, that's the issue. So in order to become a Christian, you actually have to lay down your doing. That's, that's what we talk about. You lay down. You stop boasting. You, you stop trying to earn God's love and acceptance by what you do. But after you lay it down, what the Bible says is once you've laid it down, then you can take it back up again. But what happens is now when you take up the doing of good works, it's with a whole new motivational infrastructure. That produces, here, verse 10, good works. Look what it says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so great good works can't make you a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you will be full of good works. It's just that the good works come after, not before. And so if you're a good person, but you're being good because you're at the bottom really insecure or you're trying to prove that you're good, right? you're building a spiritual resume, here's what the Bible would say, those aren't good works. This is really hard, but this is what the Bible says. It says if if that really is your motivational core, if that's your motivational infrastructure in your life, then those aren't good works. That's just selfishness and sin that's making you good. But you're really just doing it for you. A truly good work is motivated by something different, by love and gratitude. And and you can't do any good works until you know that you don't have to do any good works. Can I say that again? I mean, you can't do any good works until you know you don't have to do any good works in order to be loved and accepted by God. You can't obey the law until you first die to the law. That's Galatians chapter 2. In other words, you have to stop trying to earn your salvation by obeying the law. That doesn't make the law irrelevant. It's the step that actually makes the law obeyable it actually makes you a person who can obey the law let me say it another way there's a difference between merely obeying God and obeying him from the heart that is obeying him because you're motivated excuse me you're externally motivated you're motivated externally by the threat of his judgment by by the fear of man by whatever it might be versus obeying because you're inwardly motivated 
by worship and gratitude and love. And unless you're resting in Jesus' works for you, all your works will be a boast and therefore not truly good, not, genu- not genuinely moral, merely pragmatic. It's why Paul's clear to say grace is not opposed to effort. That was Dallas Willard's phrase, grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace is a spiritual trainer, in fact, the Bible says. You go to the gym to work with a physical trainer, grace is a spiritual trainer, that's Titus 2.11. A motivational power, but on the inside, that can teach you, that can strengthen your spiritual muscles so that you can learn to say no to worldly epithemia that can dominate your life otherwise and begin to live self-control to stop thinking about yourself so much and start living with God and others in full focus. Grace does that. Jesus said it this way, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. In other words, only the grace of Jesus can make your roots, your heart, your motivational core, the infrastructure of your life good so that the fruit of your life is also good. Effort, will, religion, these things, the fruit of all that might look good, but it's bad because the tree is still bad. So what's the difference? What makes a good work good? It is that there's no self-interest, that there's no need, that you're not doing it to get love. You're not doing it to get noticed. You're not doing it for yourself. You know you're already loved. You're already approved. And so you can do it without needing any approval, without calling any attention to yourself from a heart of genuine love and gratitude to God and love for others. Carl Truman, in uh, his important book, We talked about some of this this past Wednesday night, the rise and triumph of the modern self. He interacts with two different ways of thinking about the world. This is a little heady. Bear with me, okay? It's important. I know it's hard, and you you got to think, okay? You got kids. If you're in the room, you got to think. If you can do calculus in school, you can do theology in the church. Amen. Right? Sometimes we have to think. And Truman talks about two different ways of thinking about the world. What he calls mimesis, or actually what have been referred to as mimesis and poesis. Mimesis is a Greek word from which we get the word mimic, and it refers to art. It's a, it's a word in the art world, to art or literature that is an imitation or a representation of the real world. And so it describes an approach to life that sees the world as having a given order and a given meaning. So something is good because it corresponds to the given meaning that it holds in the world. This is how we've traditionally understood the world. C.S. Lewis, in a famous quote that I find my way back to often, he said, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem has been how to conform the soul to reality. Think about that. How to conform the soul to reality. That's mimesis. How do I, there's a reality out there that if I'm going to be happy, if my life is going to be good, I have to learn how to conform my soul to the reality I find in the world. That's mimesis. So Lewis said, that was for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem. But he goes on, he says this, for the modern man, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man. Now he wrote that 70 years ago. And that's poesis. And it sees the world as a bunch of raw material out of which each individual creates their own meaning and purpose. And we think of the word poem. That's the Greek word. A poem takes language that is at times disjointed. It's not, it's, you know, it's the raw material. It brings it together and arranges it creatively to make something beautiful. Mimesis values conformity. Poesis values creativity and self-expression. That's a, that's a massive oversimplification, but nevertheless. And the point Truman is making is that we are currently shifting away from a mimetic view of the world to a poetic, not in the way we do art, 
Because that's always been the case, not only in the way we do art, but in the way we understand identity and morality and all kinds of things in the world. Our society is rapidly moving away from a view of the world as possessing intrinsic meaning. And as that happens, the definition of good changes. Good has no transcendent meaning. It is purely subjective. For something to be good, all it has to do is to be authentic. All it has to correspond to is not the external world, the external standard. It has to correspond to internal feelings. But this text in verse 10 goes in the opposite direction because it says life, get this, it says life is not our poesis, we are God's poesis. Look at verse 10, we are his workmanship. Guess what Greek word that is? Poesis. We are God's poem. And therefore, we do good by discovering God's design for our lives and conforming our soul to his reality. And I mean design as I'm coming to a close here in two ways. Generally, there's a general sense in which we mean this. And generally, there is a moral design in the universe that is the same as physical laws like gravity. It is hazardous and potentially catastrophic to ignore gravity. You with me? I hope you know that. To climb the top to the top of a 10-story building and to jump off, it doesn't matter if you identify as a bird, you can't fly. You can't fly. Gravity is real. And so you're going to make a mess on the street below. But in the same way, it is hazardous and potentially catastrophic to ignore God's moral design. And if you approach sex and gender and sexual activity as self-expression, you're in real trouble. Teenagers, if you rebel and resent your parents instead of honoring them and obeying them and talking to them about what's going on in your life, you are going to make a mess when you nosedive into the pavement at 100 miles an hour. We are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship. You are not your own. You belong to him, whether you acknowledge it or not. And we do good by living according to his design, generally. But also specifically, because it says here, this is what I love. This text, oh, this verse is just so, so amazing and life-giving because it says here that there are specific good works that God has prepared for each one of us. I mean, that's, that's the way the commentators take this verse, that God is an artisan, that God is not a factory. He does not mass produce humans. You, every single one of you, there's 200 and something of you in the room this morning. Every single one of you, all 200 and however many of us are here, we are, every one of us, a unique work of art. That you were made to image God in a way that no one else that has ever lived in the world can. I mean, there are certain good works that your DNA, your temperament, your Enneagram number, your story, the good and the bad of it, all of it, nature and nurture, it's all preparation. Your birth order, the bully in elementary school, right? The failed relationships in your past, your degree program, your job experience, even your heartache and your loss. God has been in his workshop with you. Getting you ready for the wonderful things that he intends to do with you. I hope you know that. You are his workmanship to accomplish his work in the world through your work. There are works 
that he has prepared for you, and it's left to you, as we're told here, to walk in them. But that can be intimidating. How do you know? How do you know what work you should do then? And the answer in part, and this is the last thing that I have to say, is when it comes to work and when it comes to doing good works in the world, all that really matters, it doesn't matter so much that you figure all the details out. All that matters is that work remains a companion word alongside of grace. That's Eugene Eugene Peterson's insight. He says, you know, it doesn't really matter how you work all this out so long as work remains a companion word alongside of grace. What matters is that your work remains a grace in two ways, I think, particularly. First, by remembering that whatever work you do, whatever work you set yourself to, it is a, a grace of God itself. If ever you do your work with no relation or thought that to the fact that you yourself are God's work, then what happens is, is you'll ultimately romanticize work It will become a way of extending your own significance or influence or importance or just a way to make a lot of money or to make a name for yourself. And so Eugene Peterson says, romanticized work tends to be glamorized work. But in Genesis, and here in Ephesians 2, the word that should characterize all of our works is simply what? Good. Good. Good works. So can I just be a bearer of good news to you? Whatever your work is, it doesn't have to be important. It doesn't have to be crucial. It doesn't have to be world-changing. It just has to be good. That's enough. Work is not what we do. We are the work that God does. And so you are not working for Polk County Schools or Geico or Lakeland Regional. You are God's work doing God's work. All our work is preceded by his work. All our work takes place in God's workplace. But the other thing is that work itself, so you got to, right? So if you, if you, let me, let me say it again. If you ever do your work with no relation or thought to the fact that you yourself are God's work, you romanticize it. But the other thing is that the work itself is to be an embodiment of grace. We live in a world of sheer grace, but that grace is invisible. It lacks shape and color and texture in the world. So be careful not to spiritualize work. Don't romanticize it, but don't spiritualize it either. Don't allow yourself to think that grace stuff that he's talking about, that's what the pastors do. That's the church word. The business world is different. Can I just push back and say, no, your work, no matter what it is, is grace work. It's a container for grace. That's what makes it good. As long as, as long as this remains, this tiny, as long as this is the place, this tiny little line from a Horatio Barnar hymn, as long as this is the place from which you live all of your life, where he says, thy love to me, O God, not mine to thee. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee. If that's the place, thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee then whatever it is you put your hand to, it will become a container for grace for the whole world to see. We're saved by grace, not works. But then sent by him into the world to do works of grace. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? So Father, we do give you thanks uh, for these powerful words and the way that they can shape us. And we do ask that it would be just that, that as we come now to this time of responding to you here at the end of our service, that... You would work in our hearts that we would feel the gratitude and the joy and the reverence for you that we should. When we recognize even just the flow of the service this morning that we've been confronted with the reality that there is no one good. 
There is none who seek after God. They're, they came to Jesus at one time and said, good teacher, and he said, why do you call me good? There's only one good. Only God is good. There is no record of goodness in our past that we can look to, but there, are, there is good that has been done to us. There is good that has been done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rest our hearts in his goodness. But it's then in celebrating him and in rejoicing in him and in resting in him that we ourselves become good. And so I pray that, that you would do that renovation of heart in us this morning and that the result would be that we would even sense right in this moment a renewed energy and desire and motivation to leave this place, to go and live a life full of good works that would honor and glorify you. Because that's what you said, let your light shine so that the world would see your beautiful works and glorify God in heaven. So our works are meant to bring glory to you, to make the invisible glory of God visible in the way we do things in the world. Would that be so? But it comes from, it comes from a heart of genuine gratitude and worship, which is why our response in this moment is to sing. And so put this song in our lips and then put our feet to the mission. For your sake, we pray, oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and so with hearts of worship, we go now to serve him. Uh, There's a verse in John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus was doing his signs, and it says, and they manifested the glory of God, and the disciples saw and they believed in him, and that is the very mission that he sends us, that God's glory remains invisible in the world until it's made visible in the works that we do so that others might see and believe in him. And so, with a heart of worship, go, not trying to prove yourself, go resting in his love, already proved to you, doing good works that glorify his name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.